Our sermon text today is from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11 and a little bit of chapter 12. If you'll turn there with me in your Bible, you can find this on page 218 of the Pew Bible. Uh, Last week we saw how Saul was selected, uh, how he was anointed, and how he was proclaimed as the king. This week we're going to see how Saul... Uh, acted in, for the deliverance of Israel and became, in actual fact, the king of all the people as they unite around Saul in this critical scene. And so I'll begin today in verse 1 of chapter 11. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And by the way, if you're interested in Saul at all, this is your one and only chance to hear something good about Saul this morning. So enjoy it while it lasts because it gets worse after today. Here's the word of the Lord. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, so that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies... And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal. And there they made Saul, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. 
And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And now from chapter 12, verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. A few years ago, I came across a news story that I couldn't uh, look away from. It was a news story about the Syrian civil war, which many of you have probably heard about. It's been going on for several years. It's terribly bloody and awful, where the dictator is seeking to hang on to power and the country is split in two and it's in ruins. Uh, I couldn't turn away from the story because they were interviewing a man who had chosen to remain in the city that he grew up in. He grew up in Aleppo, which is one of the great cities of Syria. And he knew in childhood the beautiful, peaceful days of Syria when everything was great. And he loved his country. And so whenever the war came, he refused to leave. He stayed in his house and just bore it for years. He's probably still there if we were to look him up. And as they interviewed him, I was struck by, first of all, his patriotism, his loyalty, his commitment to his home place. But I was also struck by the sadness and even the terror that was in his voice. Uh, Instead of walking out every day to see a beautiful city, like when he was a kid, he walked out and saw rubble and smoldering uh, ruins. Uh, Instead of Greeting his neighbors, he heard bombs going off in different parts of the city, maybe even in his own neighborhood. And every day they lived in terror of the chemical weapons that he says were being released by Assad in his city. Uh, He was afraid, he was desperate, and yet he was hanging on every day. And I thought as I heard it, man, I know nothing about this. Praise God, right, that we don't know anything about this. Hopefully we never will, and we pray for those who do. Because I can't imagine a more frightening thing than war on your home turf. Can you? Uh, It's one thing to send troops overseas. It's a whole other thing to have the war come to your neighborhood. And yet, at the beginning of chapter 11, that is precisely the prospect that Israel is facing. Nahash, the Ammonite king, who is their easternmost neighbor, was beginning to take over territory on the east side of the country. And he had pushed all the way to Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead was the westernmost city on the east side of Israel, if you're tracking with me. It was like uh, Israel's St. Louis. It was the gateway city between the 
eastern side on the east side of the Jordan River and the western side on the west side. And he had gotten that far, meaning he had taken over significant territory already. And here he was threatening to get into the main part of Israel on the west side. He was violent. He was rude. He did had no regard for human life. All that becomes very clear. And they didn't know where to turn. It is in this circumstance that God shows us how he loves to build his kingdom. God's kingdom is always built through undeserved salvation. The people of Israel are undeserving. They have asked for a king, and and in their mind, that was a replacement for God, a God replacement. The king that God had chose for them was like the other nations, but he didn't really love God at all. Saul himself was a knucklehead. And yet in this story, God uses both Saul and the people to bring a salvation that they did not deserve against this evil guy, Nahash. Showing us exactly the way God works today. God builds his kingdom through saving people when they do not deserve to be saved. And so take a look at your bulletin. I want to show you three things about this salvation that God builds his kingdom with. If you'll look at your bulletin, first of all, in verses 1 to 4, we're going to see salvation sought. Secondly, in verses 5 to 11, salvation wrought by God. And then finally, in verses 12 to 15, and then in chapter 12, salvation caught. And I get extra preacher points today for rhyming my points. Just if you're counting and keeping score, extra points today. Sought, wrought, and caught. All right, first of all, salvation is sought by Israel in verses 1 through 4. Uh, The name Nahash sounds like the Hebrew word for snake. And that's exactly what it must have felt like. This venomous, poisonous snake had entered into their new Garden of Eden. God had given them the promised land and he had given them the promise of safety. And here comes this wicked snake of a man threatening their lives, threatening their very eyeballs if they didn't just let him mow over the territory. This time the snake was not using deception. This time the snake was using just sheer terror and force. And so you can see why in verses 1 and 2, if you'll look at that again, the people of Israel seem to have no other way to respond except desperation. They say to Nahash, hey, we'll give ourselves to you. We'll serve you. Make a treaty. And Nahash says, sure, I'll make a treaty. Let me gouge out all your right eyes, and then you can serve me. Deal or no deal? Interestingly, Israel doesn't seem to be in a position to be able to say either deal or no deal. Instead, what do they say in verse 3? Give us seven days. Okay, give us seven days, one week. So that we can send messengers out throughout all of Israel, west side and east side. And if no one will come to save us, then you can take out our eyeballs. If no one will be our savior, that's literally what it says. If we can find no savior, then I guess we have no hope. You can pluck out all of our eyes. Now apparently this... Uh, eye surgery was something that Nahash was interested in in other ways. So there's an ancient uh, 
record that says Nahash did this all the time. In fact, he had already been doing it. Uh, it was his favorite thing because it rendered the men of a place unable to fight back against him forever. Think about a time before you had guns. You, you fought with a sword in one hand and a shield in another. And most people were right-handed. And so if he plucked out the right, uh, he plucked out the, uh, right eye, uh, that meant that their good eye, right, was behind their shield because you would hold the shield in your weaker hand and the sword in your stronger hand so that you could not see to fight or else you had to learn how to fight left-handed with a sword. Either way, you were in a pretty bad position to defend yourself. Nahash had apparently done this to many, many people in the ancient world. They felt the desperation of the situation. Nahash is going to render us incapable of resisting him if we don't find a savior from somewhere. And so the messengers go out, and when the messengers reach the town of Gibeah, there's the city of Saul. Saul was the king, but he didn't reign over everybody because not everybody had uh, acknowledged his reign. There he was. And all the people, it says in verse 4, when they heard about it, began to weep loudly. They began to cry. That was the only response they had. Notice, the situation is terrible. There is terror. There is not a very good outlook. There is a sense of need. And the only thing people can do is cry and call out for a Savior. Sound familiar? This happens again and again in the Bible. It's God's pattern of working with his people. In the book of Judges, for example, there's this cycle. God's people get arrogant, and so they start to sin against God. And then God hands them over to their enemies who terrorize them. And then they finally reach the end of themselves and call out to God, and God raises up a Savior. And then they're back to square one again. And then they end up getting arrogant and so on and so forth. They have to cry, save me, help me in order to be able to receive God's salvation. Now think about it. Now you shouldn't ever call the ambulance unless you really need the ambulance. And most people don't. Most people only call the ambulance when? When it's really, really bad. Now we have a few ambulance people in the church and they know this is not always the case that people obey this rule. But most people do, right? Most people are pretty good about this. They only call when their life is at stake. And that's the way it should be. And God knows that's the way we are spiritually as well. We usually only call out to God when we are convinced deep down inside we must have him. And so the Lord has this way of working where he brings us into situations in our lives to cause us to feel our need so that in the depths of our desperation, we will actually make that cry that God so loves to answer. That cry for help, that cry for a Savior, which God loves to answer by bringing salvation. Do you realize what this means? Do you realize what this means? Does anybody in here have anything right now that they're afraid of? Does anybody have anything that's making them feel weak in their lives and helpless? Is anybody saddened by anything in life right now? 
I don't really have to ask the questions, do I? We all got those things. Guess what? What this means is those situations in your life do not have to be a waste of time. They do not have to be a waste of time that you just seek to hurry up and get out of and ignore and press down and stuff and fall into self-pity uh, like I so, am so good at doing or go to self-reliance like I'm also so good at doing. No, these times can be fruitful and productive if we will let them be our teachers to show us to cry out to God. Did you know God is active in your fear? God is active in your desperation and in your weakness and in your sickness. God is active. God is working to bring you to the end of yourself. So that in that place you'll seek his rescue and receive it by grace. God intends suffering to be fruitful which is so opposite of what we think. We think suffering is waste. Suffering is fruitless. Suffering means the crops are bad this year. I'm getting nothing out of this year because of all the bad things that have happened. And God says, no, those things are bad. He's not trying to say they're not bad. But what he's saying is in those things, you have an opportunity to learn how to cry out the way you ought to be crying out all the time for a Savior. For the Lord to come to your side and to your rescue. It's like Paul when he said, God, this thorn in my side, which he doesn't tell us what that is. He just just tells us he has a thorn in his side that's always bothering him. He says, God, take it away. And God says, no. And then he says again, take it away. And God says, no. And then he says it a third time, take it away. He begs God. And God says, no. My grace, Paul, is sufficient for you. Because in your weakness, my strength is perfected. My strength comes into its own in the weakness and the fear of my people. Call out to me. This is why Jesus pronounced us blessed if we are poor in spirit. He said we're blessed if we mourn. He said we're blessed if we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because weakness is the way to experience God's strength. I wonder this morning, how is God bringing you to the end of yourself? And are you paying attention? Are you running quickly to self-pity? Are you running quickly to self-reliance? Are you trying to ignore it? Are you listening to the lesson that God is teaching you by sending whatever trouble your way it takes For you to feel your deep need of him. God was active when Nahash the Ammonite started marching across the eastern borders of Israel. He was not off the throne. And he was seeking the salvation, not the harm, but the salvation of his people. That's the first thing. Salvation must be sought. Secondly, I want us to see how salvation is wrought. By the Lord. In verses 5 through 11, we see it. Saul is out on the, on the farm in Gibeah. So apparently, this is funny, but apparently becoming king had only caused Saul to graduate from the donkeys to the cows. Because here, instead of chasing donkeys, he's chasing cattle, oxen. 
Kind of funny. You could have laughed at that <laughs> had, you, had you thought it was funny. I think it's funny because this is why. Because Saul, this great king that they have begged God for, and then they're thinking, man, this is going to be awesome. We're going to have a king just like, well, what are the kings of the nations like? Nahash, right? Meanwhile, the king that they have picked, just like the other nations, hasn't even been able to unite the country enough to quit his day job. And so here he is, this particular day, chasing the cows around, when he hears the people weeping, and he asks what's wrong, and they tell him, Saul, Nahash is about to destroy us, and everybody is desperate with fear and desperate with sadness. Notice what it says. Verse 6, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled his anger this was a good anger from Saul do you know some anger is good now now we tend to excuse all of our anger as good anger and bad anger is just your anger my anger is always good and justified and that's not true but there are times when anger is perfectly good after all God is perfect and he gets angry And here, when the Spirit of God rushed on Saul, it gave to Saul a little taste of God's own anger against the enemies of his people, God's jealousy for his people. This is like the same word used of Jesus as he stood at the tomb of Lazarus. His friend was dead and all the family was crying and weeping and mourning. And it says Jesus was deeply grieved. And and that word means he was angry. Not because they were crying. But because Lazarus died, because death is a reality in the world now that we have sinned. Jesus was angry at the misery of the world. And the Spirit of God, through him, raised Lazarus in that great story in John 11. And here, similarly, even the knucklehead Saul receives a rushing of the Spirit. In fact, it's only about two knuckleheads in the Bible that this phrase is used. For the Spirit of God to rush on somebody is only used of Samson and Saul. There's a pair for you. Two men who were not good guys. I think everybody would agree with that. They did a lot of bad things. And yet, for at least a moment or two, God's Spirit came on them and used them to save His people. And that's what happens here. His anger is kindled and He begins to rally the troops. He, he literally sends out the selective service announcement to all of Israel. The draft goes out. And that's what's being described there when it says he cut up two oxen and he sent the pieces and, and with the pieces of the cow he sent this message. If people, if you do not come out after me to fight, so it shall be done to your oxen. That was a way of saying in the ancient world, you will be fined heavily. If you do not listen to the king's instructions, it was a draft. And out of that draft came an army of 330,000 fighting men. Amazing. Amazing. In fact, it tells us there in verse, in verse uh, 8 that it wasn't the dread of Saul that caused everybody to sign up for the draft. It wasn't the dread of losing their cattle. What was it? 
Did you see it in verse 8? It was the dread of the Lord that fell on people's hearts. So not only do you have Saul receiving the Spirit, but all the people began to receive the influence of God's Spirit to fear God more than people, and they rallied together to fight. And the confidence of the people grew, so much so that they were able to say in verse 9 to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, by the time you sit down to eat your lunch, you will have, you shall have salvation. The same people who wondered, will there be a Savior, are now being told, not only is there a Savior, but that Savior stands ready, and within 24 hours, you will be completely saved. It's amazing what happens. Saul, who's never led an army a day in his life, leads 330,000 people in three companies, 110,000 each, into the Ammonite camp in the wee hours of the morning, and they fought them all the way to lunchtime, just as the word had said, and every one of the Ammonites were either struck down or scattered one by one. The threat had been completely neutralized. Completely. God had not just delayed Nahash. He had not just delayed the Ammonites in their ill intentions. God had taken them out to deliver his people completely from their grasp. Now think about it. Sometimes what we need is more than a halfway job, right? Sometimes the problems that we're in need a full, completed, finished work. There are some things you do in life that if you do them halfway or part of the way, still you benefit from it some, right? A lot of things are like that. But there are a few things that if you only do it halfway or part of the way, you may as well not have even done it. Think about this as an example. Imagine that the Sunshine Skyway Bridge went down. And they have to build a new one. And a crew comes out and they start building and they get halfway across the bay and they stop. And they declare, the bridge is built. How many of you would take that route to St. Pete? Because bridges are like that, right? Like many things. A halfway job is no job at all. And what this story is telling us is that when God's spirit stirs, when God carries out his plan to save his people, it's never a halfway measure. He doesn't build a bridge halfway across the gulf between him and us and hope that we can make it to the halfway point and jump across on our own strength. God builds a bridge all the way from one side to the other. He saves us totally, delivers us completely through his spirit by faith. God does it. There's nothing in this story that suggests that Israel was saved by their own power. Remember what Israel was doing? They were weeping when God came to them. Saul was tending the garden when God came to him. And yet when God came, God set forth his hand to save. 
As Dale Ralph Davis says about the passage, I love how he says it. Salvation came not because Israel had a king. Don't think that. Okay, salvation did not come because Saul was in place. Salvation came because the king had Yahweh's spirit. It's not because of the king. It's because the spirit who rushed upon the king to give him the strength he needed to overwhelm Nahash's forces. The snake, once again, kicked out of the garden, made to eat the dust of the earth. His boasting was ended, and the people could have confidence. Now, Christian, let me tell you this. No matter what you're going through in your life, ever, no matter what it is, you always have a place to look in confidence. Because God's work to save you is a finished work, not a partial work. Look up next time you're struggling with this. Look up. And when you look up and say, I don't see anything, I want you to look up with your eyes closed. And I want you to try to see it with faith, what I'm about to describe to you. Because Jesus Christ, the King, has conquered. And if you look up in faith, you'll see him. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's a conqueror. He's conquered sin, death, and hell way more than Nahash. He's conquered the sin that would not just gouge your eye out, but send your eyes and your body and your soul into hell. He's conquered it. How did he conquer it? Not by cutting up an ox into pieces and sending it to his people, but by having his own body cut up into pieces and sending it out to all of his people. Wow, what a savior. Not by gathering troops with weapons and swords, but by gathering people through the preaching of the gospel who are devoted to him spiritually. From the heart, he gathers his army to conquer and to bless. Now, if you're not looking there, Christian, for your confidence, I don't know where you're looking. But you're selling yourself way, way short. Way short. It doesn't matter what else you're looking at. It's far less than that. Just as Israel could say to Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow you shall have salvation. A Christian in every circumstance can say, I shall have salvation. Not I might, not if I play my cards right, I'll have it. Not if so-and-so is nice to me and likes me, I'll have it. No, you shall have it. Because Christ has won it. The Spirit of God has rushed upon our Savior. And He has finished the work. Amen? What confidence. Salvation wrought. Now lastly, let's look at how salvation must also be caught by us the saving work of christ just like the saving work of saul must be received in such a way that it changes your life in verses 12 to 15 after the victory has been completed a group of people come to samuel if you'll look at verse 12 and they say to samuel who are all those people that used to say they didn't want saul to be the king who who are they bring them here and let's kill them right now because Saul is obviously our man. Look at what he did. What does Saul say? I'm going to tell you. You might want to take a picture. 
because this is Saul's greatest moment. Take a picture. File it away. I love that the Holy Spirit took a picture and put it in the Bible because this is it. This is his highest moment. He says, no man shall be put to death today. Why? For today God has worked salvation in Israel. This is a salvation day, not a revenge day, not a killing day, not a violent day, a day of salvation. Let's have a feast. Let's call Samuel. Let's get the people together. Let's worship God. Saul never had a finer moment. And what this shows us is that when we similarly cross over from our own kingdoms into God's kingdom by grace, there will be a similar life change. The Bible calls it repentance where we leave behind our old way of life and enter into a new way of life. The people show mercy. They recommit to God as their king. They offer sacrifices. It says in verse 15 at the very end, the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Wow. I've never seen a bigger reversal, by the way, in a single chapter than that. In verse 4, it says all the people wept loudly. By the time you get to verse 11, they rejoiced greatly. What a change. And the change came because they were willing to cross over from the kingdom of their own imagination into the kingdom that God was building for them, where he was the king who defended and saved his people. This is what Jesus meant when he said, and he said this in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, the time is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus was drawing a line there. He was building a, a border between his kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. And he was saying, if you want to be a Christian, being a Christian and following me, Jesus says, is not just becoming moral. It's not about having some good ideas that you think about. It's not about having goosebumps when you sing certain songs, although all those things may be a part of it, here's what being a Christian is. Being a Christian is crossing from one country into another. And here is the border. Repent and believe the gospel. Have you ever gone to a different country and crossed a border? What do they call that when you cross a border and you have to go through a process? What's that called? Customs. Customs. What do you have to do at customs? Declare. That's right. You declare to declare it all. What do you have to declare? Where you're coming from, who you are, where you're a citizen from, where you're going, why you're going there, who you're going to stay with, business, pleasure. What is it? What are you bringing with you? What are you planning on taking out? You got to declare everything to cross a border. You have to be willing to completely leave behind the jurisdiction that you're leaving and enter a new jurisdiction for a time. It's a big deal to cross a border. And Jesus says, similarly, with my kingdom, you have to go through customs. You have to declare who you have been, how lost you've been, how desperate you've been, how afraid you've been. You have to declare how sinful you have been. 
And you have to come across by repentance to my kingdom where you get to declare now what you aspire to be, what God will make you by grace, who he calls you by his grace. You have to get it all out on the table. Burn the bridges. Cut the ships from the dock and say, I am now in my new country and here I'm going to stay. That's what it means to be a Christian. Someone for whom salvation becomes more than an idea, but a reality that changes the life. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 14, he says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Okay, you say, all right, big deal. What does that mean? That means this. The kingdom of God is not about switching physical borders. It's not as if, you know, you have to become an American or a Cuban or whatever to be a Christian. It's not that you have to trade in this cuisine for that cuisine, this custom for that custom. It's not about the physical customs of men and women. He says the kingdom of God is this. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those are the customs of the kingdom of heaven. Those are the things we have to put on and adopt now that God has saved us by his grace. And that's what you see in this story. There is peace. Saul refuses to kill his enemies. He refuses to show revenge because God has been gracious to him. Wow. It's righteousness. The people commit again to following God and not worshiping other idols. They're to turn aside from empty things, chapter 12, verse 21, that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. And they are to follow the Lord without ceasing. And they commit to that righteousness. And there is also, y'all, joy. J-O-Y. Joy. Being a Christian ought to produce joy. Why did they rejoice? Well, they rejoiced because God had done what they could not do. God had welcomed them into his kingdom. And there were many benefits to being in God's kingdom. And so they offered sacrifices of praise. And they rejoiced greatly before the Lord. The kingdom of God, because it's a kingdom of undeserved salvation consists in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Is that your life? Do you want that to be your life? If you're not a believer, it can be. Crossing over doesn't require any... You don't have to get on a plane. You don't have to pack bags. But what you do have to do is repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. If you are a Christian, I wonder, can anybody look at your life and say with a straight face, this person's life is a celebration of salvation? Let me ask that again. That one convicted me, and I, I don't know if you heard me. That's why I want to say it again. Can anybody look at your life and say, that person, their life is a celebration of salvation? Why not? If not, why not? If so, how can it be more so? That's what this life is about. Learning how to keep the feast. 
the kingdom-renewing lifestyle of righteousness, peace, and joy. Our God is a saving God. And as we come to his table this morning, I want you to think about that. Our life ought to be from this table, from this place, an endless feast of celebration. We were dead. Our eyes were as good as plucked out. And God's spirit rushed in and saved us. Amen.